Hello, you're listening to the Coffee and Books podcast. I'm your host, Scott. Welcome. If you're new here, please be sure to give me a shout out. My name is Scott. I like to do different podcast reviews. Apologies if you hear a vacuum going in the background. Uh, Me and my wife are doing some do-it-yourself projects today. So if you hear that noise in the background, that is a uh, vacuum that is running. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about today's book. Today's book is going to be an awesome one. It's called Nothing But a Good Time, the uncensored 80s uh, music, um, hard rock music in particular, the hair metal scene. Um, it's awesome. For those of you who don't know already, I'm obsessed with music. I'm big Spotify, vinyl, CD, cassette, whatever it is. Pretty much I listen to it if it's on any music format person. So what is it that about this uh, book in particular that drew me to it is that it's an interview book. It's literally just an author going around and interviewing very different celebrities and people in the music industry and asking them what were their thoughts and opinions about the 1980s and early 1990s hair metal music scene. Now, for those of you who need some definitions, the hair metal music scene is hard rock sort of glam metal music from the 1980s. Uh, We think of bands like Poison and Motley Crue as hair metal bands. Uh, But this terminology can be expanded to many, many different bands in the 80s. Uh, You had hard rock bands like Guns N' Roses that were a big part of it. You had different bands like Tesla. You had Winger. You had Night Ranger. You had all these different types of bands that were Uh, bands, the bigger the hair, the bigger the 80s sound, you know, the more loud it was, the better it was. So there's definitely some sort of explanation for what things were like in the 80s. So many of these bands that were big in the 80s initially started in the 1970s. So the best example of this were Twisted Sister and Quiet Riot. Uh, My personal favorite is Quiet Riot. Their big song, the song that broke them through to the mainstream, that made them number one in the entire planet, was Come On Field Noise, which is actually a cover of a 1970s band, Slade, and their version of that single. The band initially did not want to record this song. They felt that they were going in their own direction. They did not need to do that. They had their own songs, their own music. Uh, Quiet Riot had actually released a bunch of albums before this, but they did not get picked up really in the U.S. They were released on a Japanese label. So when it came time to have more mainstream success, or when the MTV really first broke ground, it was with Come On, Feel the Noise. But why did this happen? Well, there's a lot of factors. One, MTV. Two, the fact that it was the first new type of sound that was emerging in the 80s, which is metal music. And uh, they're not considered by any means glam metal music or hair metal, metal, but Quiet Riot is one of the best bands in the 1980s because they initially broke the barrier between what I would like to call the 70s hard rock sound. You had bands like Led Zeppelin, The Who, in the 70s, and there was this crossover kind of with this band called Van Halen. And Van Halen is the early early 70s, uh, 80s, 90s even, hard rock sound uh, with David Lee Roth. Um, It was what glam music would eventually become, glam metal music. Van Halen was the early prototype of what bands wanted to be. Motley Crue... Uh, these type of bands, Poison, wanted to start out being a version of Van Halen. And so that was a big deal because uh, it all stems from the fact that those bands, like Van Halen, took their influences from, you know, their heroes, their icons, you know, people like Elvis. So you had people that go back far enough and eventually you get to uh, the present modern day. 
uh, where everyone is influenced by everyone. But in the 1980s, those glam rock sounds were considered to be dinosaurs, as New Wave was all over the charts. People like Elvis Costello, The Cars, uh, people like Duran Duran were everywhere. The 1980s considered New Wave the thing that people listened to. And eventually, though, as I said, Quiet Riot was given a record contract. They did come on Feel the Noise, but they initially sabotaged the record because they felt that that particular song was not strong enough, and they didn't actually want to do it which is crazy to me that that song went number one and brought them all that fame and power. So Twisted Sister is another great example of the 70s band that turned into an 80s glam rock scene. Now, where did Twisted Sister go right and where did they go wrong is a whole long story, but Twisted Sister is one of the best examples of a 1970s band who was selling out arenas and doing tours but didn't have a record out. They did not have a contract. No one would buy them. They said they were dinosaur music. Again, in the 1980s, they changed a little bit of their format, their style. They started wearing more makeup, more outrageous outfits, and they started to get noticed. And again, MTV started playing them. And then again, they went from being a dinosaur to being right up front and center. So again, bands like Twisted Sister and Quiet Riot opened the door. But for many bands, where the home scene was, was the L.A. Strip, where you went to see bands, uh, and there were a lot of them. Uh, many bands went out there because the Strip was cheap. It was a, a place to play. Um, it was before paying to play. For those of you who don't know, the Sunset Strip is a great example of today's world where a band that wants to make it big in the industry has to go to L.A., and if they're lucky and they get the chance to play one of those historic venues like the Whiskey, the Troubadour, they usually have to pay money to play at that venue. In other words, you're not making money. You're not making any money that you're pay, playing, or you're paying money to play at this famous venue and have your show there because of its historical value. Um, and there's a lot that I find personally wrong with that, but we're not going to get into that on this subject. We're just going to say right now before that you had bands that were good, that were playing the strip, and it was all about advertising. Posters, flyers, tickets, who had the best women coming to their shows, who had the most makeup, who had the best pyrotechnics. It was all that came out of the 1980s. And uh, you had bands that were not glam at all, like I said, like Guns N' Roses, that just had that hard rock, Aerosmith, Rolling Stone type of sound, and that was bluesy. And then you had bands that were copying whatever was the latest fashion trend to come out and be popular. But again, that was just the early days of the Sunset Strip. Um, it's also crazy that many of these kids were not even old enough to drink. They weren't even old enough to go to these shows. But oftentimes, the drinking age was, at that point, 18. Many people snuck in the shows. Security was lax. It was a different time in our history that made everything this way. As I said, MTV was a big reason that bands headed off, and they would show their uh, you know, music videos on television. It was nationwide. That was one of the early ways people found and discovered new music. Uh, but what was important with MTV is not only did it open it to a new audience, you could actually call in and vote for your number one you know, favorite band or artist that you wanted to see. And at that point in time, you called over the phone in order to do it. So many times these were payolas. So a payola is where you would say, I'm going to pay a DJ, or in this case, video DJ, to play my record. So in a very, very high and corrupt sort of business market model, 
MTV was a place where you would go and you'd pay them a lot of money so that your video would be number one on the charts. And that's exactly what happened. The hair metal scene came in, artists all of a sudden had money, they were paying to have their videos played and put up on TV, um, but it was an innocent sort of time that was also very problematic in the later years. But in the 1980s, everything was about having a good time, partying, drinking, um, having sex. That was what was popular in the 1980s glam rock hair metal scene. Uh, but unfortunately, many of these music videos and albums and their lyrics did not age well. A lot of this became misogynistic. Um, this was before the AIDS epidemic had really grown into being what it would be. Um, but it was a time in history when drugs were everywhere, people just partied nonstop, and it was just a time in which music like this, um, and specifically hair metal, was over the top, just like all of the 1980s pretty much was, in all different sorts of ways. Uh, but it was something that was very interesting, that eventually parents would get onto the fact that uh, you know, these lyrics that their kids are listening to are pretty violent or pretty disturbing or pretty sexist or misogynistic. And that's why a parenting labeling system came into effect, the parental advisory label that we all know today. Um, so if you're not familiar, back in the day, if you were to go to a store and buy an album, if it had a parental advisory, you had to have someone who was an adult with you to buy that album. You couldn't just go up as a kid or a teenager and buy an album, you had to be a certain age to buy it. And that was a big deal to get that label put on there. Uh, but it, again, it was a rating system that was just to make parents more aware of what their kids were listening to. Um, but, you know, of course, there's also other factors that made the 80s so outrageous and crazy. Bands like Motley Crue would often destroy hotels. Um, bands racked up ridiculous uh, fees, not just for the fact that they're doing and spending all their money on drugs and alcohol, but the fact that they're getting advances from record labels, and they would often use these advances to pay for damages that they would do to hotels. Imagine you're going on a, a massive tour, and while you're on that tour, you're destroying everything, you're destroying each hotel in a new town you're going to. Those bands had to pay for it. That was in their contracts. So... Then, of course, you had successful survivors from the early years of music like Ozzy Osbourne that were going on tour to make great music. So you had, at one point, Ozzy and Motley Crue touring together. Um, you had Kiss that was trying to sign bands. Um, and then, of course, there's not only the L.A. scene, but you had a New Jersey rock scene in the 80s where you had Bon Jovi and bands like Cinderella coming out. Um, and then, of course, you know, like I said, I mentioned Metal Health, which was... Uh, the Come On, Feel the Noise album by Quiet Riot knocking off Police and Michael Jackson uh, to go to number one. So that was a huge deal for the industry, and that was a big deal of what was going on in the times. Um, you had people uh, that also talked about the dark side of what was going on in the 80s, and this book does a great job of exploring the dark side of the drugs and the alcohol but the way the book works is this is the rise of how these bands got famous, then there's the success, and then it's when it all comes crashing down. Um, my favorite moment, I guess you could say, is actually a very disturbing, sad moment in the Motley Crue band's cycle, but it was Vince Neil's um, problem with drugs and alcohol that caused him to crash a car, killing a member of a, a friend of his, a fellow Hanoi Rocks band member, uh, Razzle, and of course when Razzle was killed, there were also innocents injured in this drunk driving crash. 
uh, Vince got away with pretty much a slap on the wrist and continued to do his lifestyle and partying. Although he tried to maintain sobriety, um, many of these 80s rock stars talked about their difficulties with addictions and what it was like. Um, you know, bands like, again, like Motley Crue had inspiration for Kickstart My Heart, which literally came from a Nikki Six overdose. So there was a lot happening in the 1980s with drugs and heroin and cocaine and all the drugs that they were doing. Um, again, eventually you had bands that were coming out that just copied the fashion and not necessarily the sound. So you, again, had later bands like Poison that were considered too girly. Although these bands did find mainstream success, um, it was primarily because of their fantastic marketing. Uh, you know, like the, the women went to concerts to see Poison, and when that happened, eventually dudes would follow the women to go see the concerts, and then that would bring in the many, many people that would go see the show. Uh, but of course, you know, later on in the decade, when you get the bands like Warrant and uh, different bands like that, like uh, Winger, um, it sort of became an inside joke that these were bands were not very good bands, but they were just bands that were performing a certain style and look and paying lip service to the earlier bands that came before them, but they were not to be taken seriously as an actual hard rock band, which is a shame because if you've ever listened to Warren and Winger, they're both great bands, even though they get made fun of for being sort of one-hit wonders. Um, of course, then later on, uh, you know, we have grunge music in the 90s, which is sort of the downfall of the end of the 80s music scene, you know, where 90s reality sort of hits. But it's, again, funny how it works because it's all just a cycle of a scene. You know, the 80s was about the hair metal and the music, and the 90s was about the grunge look. But the 2000s was different than the 90s, and the 2010s is different than the 2000s. So in essence, whoever's popular in this decade, you know, they will not necessarily be lucky if they are popular in a few more decades from now. And that's what the whole point of the story is, is that many bands are fortunate if they can continue touring 20 or 30 years later. Some of these bands in the 80s, you know, like Faster Pussycat, don't have even the same original band members anymore. But people recognize the logos, the stage, and the setting. Um, reunion tours happen, and it's actually interesting how there was a festival called Rocklahoma in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, that actually brought hundreds and thousands of people together to be a Woodstock, but for 80s music. And how successful that was, that that festival continues every year to this day. And in fact, it's so good that many, many rock bands, even regardless of the fact if they're 80s or not, like to play that festival. So I like to point out to everyone that 80s music did receive a big revival in the early 2000s and even 2010s. Many of those bands still tour today. And the best part about the book, or at least my favorite, was the ending, where it talks about how these bands survived. They all tried to achieve their own brand of sobriety, hopefully if they were lucky. Some did not survive it, unfortunately. But you had many successful bands and artists that were starting to make more money. And they talk about how it's not necessarily the music anymore, but it's their brand, their image that they had created in the 80s. The parents of the 1980s introduced their kids when their kids grew up. So in my case, being a 30-something or someone who's a 20-something might be exposed to 1980s music, and those people went out and listened to it, and expose, they'll expose their kids, hopefully, to it in the future. So i just like to point out and say to everyone that the 80s isn't necessarily over. You know, that type of music, yes, it wasn't to be necessarily taking 100% seriously, 
And you could argue and even say that it's misogynistic, it's racist, it's homophobic, and there was a lot wrong with it, which to be granted, yes, there was. There was a lot of things that were wrong with the 80s um, hair metal scene. But what's most important is that it was about having a good time, and I think that's something that's missing from many rock musicians today. Rock music, especially, I think, in today, took on more of the grunge approach, which is the angsty teenager sort of side, or maybe just angrier issues and talking about hard, difficult subjects, when I think it would be nice, again, to listen to uh, rock songs that were about having nothing but a good time on the weekend, or having, you know, to be the ability to go out and party again. You know, we need more party anthems, of course, too. So then, of course, recently... In the late 2010s, you had the success of Motley Crue's biopic. You had bands, again, going out on tour, talking about their success. But most importantly, you had a revival of Guns N' Roses, the original members, which that brought back a lot of interest towards 80s hard rock sound and music. And, of course, inspired the next generation. Uh, the tours were very successful. And even to this day, you have bands like Def Leppard, Poison, Motley Crue, touring again. Um, you had the original 80s bands that you could ever possibly imagine. They're out there, still making their bucks. So maybe they're not as successful as they once were, and they're not as chart-topping, but they're still out there having a good time, providing nothing but a good time for the rest of us. Anyway, that's today's episode. So I like the book. One thing I would change about it is or I would rather explain, is that during the interview process, they interviewed hundreds of people. So I wish it was a little bit, tiny bit more clear about who we were interviewing and what bands they were in. I know that they did a good job considering there's hundreds of people, but I do think that it was important to know, in particular when a band was talking about a subject, what band those bands were in, or what artist that band was in. Um, some of those bands in the 80s and 90s I was not familiar with. You know, bands like Trix and Faster Pussycat and Vixen, these were bands that I did not even know even existed. So this is saying a lot for someone who does listen to that type of music. So keep that in mind. Um, also keep in mind that if you like this podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. I do different types of book reviews from manga to novels to historical books, um, anything you could ever possibly want to read or learn about. Anyway, thank you again for listening to this podcast. Please feel free to email me at scottbernstein16 at yahoo.com. That's spelled S-C-O-T-T-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N 16 at yahoo.com. Thank you all and have a great night.